Oh, yeah. On the calendar for the College Bible Study series, we've got uh, Ted's coming in. That's uh, Stephen's dad. So we're looking forward to that. That's uh, November 14th through 16th. Study in Apologetics. I think it's a three-nighter. And then tonight, our class from the last three weeks, some of you guys will be doing your practicum and teaching. So your inductive Bible lesson tonight. So we'll look forward to seeing uh, that as well. That'll be just for tonight, those that want to. Great. You can read the rest of it. Let's get going. We're going to be in 1 Kings, and we're going to be in chapter 20. As had been mentioned before, Elisha now is paired up with Elijah in probably the balance of about 15 to 17 years remaining in Elijah's ministry. Elisha, who concluded chapter 19 in following Elijah and note this becoming his servant, will be extraordinarily carrying on the mission of correction for God's people, but in a very miraculous showing of both mercy and grace, he will be likened as a picture of our great shepherd, Jesus. Elijah's limited to about seven miracles that he has been noted for in at least five of them presently. And this will be a great opportunity to see both contrast, but also the complement of being a disciple. The song that you just heard and the song last week that you heard is about being a disciple, one who follows the Lord. And in following the Lord, we at times have an opportunity to follow people who have been following the Lord. We can find ourselves highly persuaded to have a heart for God based on the enthusiasm and the commitment that is obviously motivating one before us. That's good. And so here's what we find. The word of the Lord that had come to Elijah that was prophecy and yet to be fulfilled is now on target in satisfying the will of God, but in the perfect timing of God. Right now, the will of God is being satisfied. In his perfect timing, there are things that will require of us great patience, but great confidence in our weight, that he's on the throne, he's in control. One of the things that you can find on, I believe, our telegraph link, telegram link. <laughs> Don't worry, I wasn't a part of the telegraph generation. I feel like it, but I wasn't. 
is that Amir Safar is very much keeping us abreast of the things that are happening on the world scene and in particular with Israel. And being able to share that with you is important because it's present tense. And his confidence is in his knowledge and understanding of Bible prophecy to keep the church motivated and to as well inspire his citizenry. He's from Israel, but he's saved. All of Israel as a nation is not saved. Highly secular, highly political, still highly favored by God. But when we look back from where we're at presently in scriptures, which for us, as we're looking at these kings, we're seeing them march historically, ultimately to their destination of doom and of judgment, we can take that and look back and see, well, how well have we done? And about this time in our history, this is about 61 years since the time that Rehoboam took over from his father, Solomon. 61 years have passed at this point in time in our history, roughly. And that puts us not at Lyndon Bain Johnson, but at John F. Kennedy. So if you have to go back in your mind historically, go, well, how well have we done since Kennedy? But there's going to be a continuance of saying, well, how well have we done since that other president, that other president. And in some presidencies, we've done very well. In some presidencies, we have not done well at all. In some Congresses, we've done very well. Not all Congress. In some judiciaries, we've done well. Not in all judiciaries. The fact of the matter is, God is making changes. The narration gives way right now to say, even as this is now a condition of God's patience and timing, there will be a play out that matches with the word of Elijah that is now going to be voiced in action to anointing a future king. That's important to see. It's a king that is out of the geopolitical landscape of Israel, but a neighbor. And that's going to be important because we'll look at the guy that's going to be going away. There's going to be a king of Israel that right now is being prophesied just in where we left off. But that's 29, approximately about 29 more years before Azza will take that position. And so we've seen that happen. This is Jehu, by the way, excuse me, is as another character. Let's take a look at where we will be. Verse 20, chapter 20, verse 1. Now Benadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his forces together. And it says 32 kings were with him with horses and chariots. And he went up and besieged Samaria and made war against it. And so this would be one positioned adversarially against Israel. That's what he's doing. 
when you look and see how many kings that he has with him, you're going, my goodness, does it take that many kings in such a small region? And the bottom line is, is that, you know what, we're not too far from that ourselves. In this day and age of high-tech communique, all kinds of positions being vied for, or all positions, if you would, being divvied out to make political statements and alliances and garnish favor, we're not too far different. We have what you would call official kingships or authorities over governances, but a lot of us know very well that in the social sphere of media, many have made themselves kings and princes over the lives of people. They're called influencers. For what they do, they garnish attention. And sometimes that, tent, that attention becomes highly persuasive. We have interesting kings and princes on the scene who with lots of money can do a lot of things to influence, perhaps greatly as we know, contrary to God's will, what is to be done. God's not threatened by it, but you and I ought to take a serious inventory of saying, huh, what's being done here? What's happening as a result of that guy's influence and that guy's money? What's happening as a result of the church, which seems to be losing a fortitude of faithfulness? What happens when, as even in our title, which again is, I think, apropos, and I'm going to track it to be sure that I have it. The forecast for phonies. Because this is what Elijah was told to do. Go ahead and prepare in advance for what I'm going to do. And you're going to be facing off with people who have turned their face against me. And what you say, I will satisfy and do it according to my word, regardless of how it checks off on your boxes. See, in a couple of days, we're going to be checking boxes off. The church is going to be checking boxes off. Are you checking in with God on the boxes that you're to be checking off? That's important because you've got a moment to be able to partner with God on what it is he wants to do. And as I've said before, we could be divided on the color scheme. I don't really have to worry about that much. I'm color deficient. Literally, I see color, I think, but there are some things that I cannot see, and I kind of use that to my advantage. I'm colorblind. But even as we were led through communion, I know the right color that has both affected me and what God's desire is, is that it has an effect on the world based on my position as a believer. So if you're an Elijah today, and you are, if you're part of this community of faithful congregants, you've got a message to give to the phonies out there. You do so with confidence. You do so not with arrogance, because that's where they're coming from. You might have read this. I think that it came across just a standard news uh, buzz line, but there were, they called them conservatives, Christians, reading Bible passages, gathered together, 
They were in a forum, but not necessarily trying to stir up anything. And guess who came? Those who did not like Bible reading, conservative, uh, political, if you would, affiliation, nothing. And so they shouted them down. The one young man, as I understand it, who was reading from the scriptures, the Bible probably similar to mine or yours, it was taken from his hands forcefully. Pages were ripped out of it. And it's very interesting. What I think I heard in the commentary is that that person that ripped the pages out of the Bible began to eat the word. I thought, wow, well, you're kind of getting the idea. You're getting the idea. It's going to hit you in the belly like bitterness, but not bad. I could have said how sacrilegious you should be executed immediately for taking the word of God. He's doing the best he could in that which his flesh is trying to thwart the faith of God exercised through people of God. I believe that in some manner, even though he was doing it to mock the word of God, I have a heart that says, you know what, God can, <laughs> God can use that angry expression of devouring the pages of ink that were pressed in between leather to show him something of himself. So this particular political aggressor is now moving with many kings and princes alongside of him to besiege Samaria, which is the capital of Israel, not Judah. Judah's in Jerusalem. This is north, the ten tribes. And so then he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Benadad, Your silver, notice this, and your gold are mine. We're hearing that, aren't we? It's mine. We hear that from the IRS. It's mine. <laughs> have you heard that from the IRS? I have. In fact, there's supposed to be a dispatch of officers to make sure that the gold and silver is not mine. Notice this, your loveliest wives and children are mine. What is culture telling us about what this is saying is inarguable? The loveliness of wives and of children. It's saying your family we can raise. And it is not any longer gender distinction. It is gender fluidity, they're mine. We will conform them into our image. The beauty of what marriage represents to God is not by means of our definition. Satan's got a foothold. How much of the foot do you want him to have in your family, in your community? There's a voice. You never have to apologize for the precepts that God has put in his word. You never have to apologize for being a man or a woman, a young boy, a young girl. You own it. You never have to be confused about it. 
that's not of God. That's of Satan. And the accomplice of Satan are certain people in governance who have turned their back on God for political power. That's it. When that happens, then morality is no longer presented before a culture, but immoral behavior is exalted. Corruption ensues. Confusion becomes the landscape of what God would say is my design for a beautiful living experience, though short, one that has the promise of eternity that you will not outlive, but live forever with me. So Satan's at work to undermine whom? The next generation. School systems have not done well in fighting it. School systems have actually been contributors in that corruption. Not all people in school systems are corrupt. I happen to know that because as a believer, I was a teacher. And I was teacher with other believers. And I believe we were holding position. And we were thwarting certain advances that we saw coming into the classroom. And we challenged curriculum that was vile and inappropriate. I remember all of those things. We need to pray for our teachers that are there. We also need to pray for our homeschool moms and dads that are also contributing significantly to the fortitude of what will be the means by which the message of the gospel is highly persuasive, effectual, because of conviction. So right now, as this is advancing on, Ahab has a reason to be afraid, but it is God still visiting him with grace, and we'll see how that happens. Benadad has threatened now. He's coming after the gold, the silver. He's going to get those wives, and he's going to take the children. Sounds like corrupt government to me. The king of Israel answered and said, My lord, O king, just as you say, I and all that I have are yours. So this is clearly a statement of compromise. It's clearly not taking a stand of realizing that just days, if not weeks before, he had been confronted by Elijah. He had been literally escorted, though in advance Elijah beat him to Jezreel, a place where he was going to reunite with his wife Jezebel. And the wink and the nod was that Elijah was making it very clear, you saw evidence of God in your life this day. He's champion. You're not. Baal is false. God is true. Tell your wife that. And tell her the days of that priesthood that's assembled around the delicacies of her table. They're numbered. That's essentially what was taking place, a confrontation. There's a way to have confrontation that is important and highly spiritual without hurting those that are confronted. Because when they're confronted with truth, they're going to either do something with it, apply it to their heart, 
or they may in fact ingest it in a way in which God can work with that too. There may be a scourging for you. There may be the backlash of a careless tongue. There may be the threat of your life on the line. These things can happen. Persecution is manifested in that way. But you got to take a position. First position right now that this king Ahab should have taken was to be on his face. He should have been on his face. Knees would have worked really well too. Hands lifted a private walk with God. Call up Elijah, get him on the line. Elijah, this is where I'm at. This is what's going on. I've just been threatened by your neighbor to the north. What is it that I'm to do? But what he does is he voices the sound of surrender. And so all of us can do that. We can do it, for instance, in years right now, where what has been a social study and provable is bystander apathy, in which we know that what's going on is wrong. People are getting hurt, but rather than stand up, we turn away from it. We turn on another distraction concerning it. That was a study that was done, I believe, in the latter 60s. It became a social studies. My father taught it. A situation in New York City in which a woman who was walking home was accosted and she was killed in one of the tenements or back alley homes within the city that had no excuse as to how she could not have been saved. She screamed in advance of being overwhelmed. She screamed in the process of being dragged away. And she screamed in the process of being murdered. And it baffled social scientists. And what they labeled it was bystander apathy in which people knew what was going on. And they closed their ears and their heart, refusing to assist, to put themselves in the way of harm in order to free somebody who was being killed. It became a study, and it can be documented. We have that too. Probably a lot more excuses on the things that we can say are distractions to not knowing what was going on. In essence, we have bystander apathy that potentially endangers what we would say is the heart of God for this nation to do with the forefathers of this nation and presenting a document that had been studied against all other governances of the known world at that time. How do we have a nation that rightly governs its people to enjoy liberty that has been unknown? And of course, it began by acknowledging that God would be preeminent. So I don't know what you were thinking, Ahab, but it doesn't look like you were putting much of your heart to God for you to all of a sudden just acquiesce and go, oh, okay, gold, silver, wife, kids? That'll do it for you? Are we good if I give you that? So, church, 
claim your families, give up nothing that compromises what God has given to you. And so that's what he does by word. And the messengers came back and said, Thus speaks Benhadad, saying, Indeed, I have sent to you, saying, You shall deliver to me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children, but I will send my servants to you tomorrow at about this time. And they shall search your house and the houses of your servants, and it shall be that whatever is pleasant in your eyes, they will put in their hands and take it. Okay, that sounds more like the tax guy. Back in Jerusalem, not presently, but in Jesus' day, that was actually the model. Rome got Jewish men who were good with counting, and whatever they could take, in addition to the taxes which were required, was theirs to keep. Who did Jesus go after in the scriptures to make one of his own? It was Matthew. So you have to be really careful with regard to mocking those who, in the beginning, didn't know what they were doing. They were just vocationally doing what seemed to be trending in the same way. We can vocationally be doing what seems to be trending, and God all of a sudden comes along, looks at where we're at, and says, follow me. Follow me. I know what you've been doing, but I know where it is you're going, and you're going with me. Follow. Makes a difference. And you can follow at any time. It just depends on whether you'll choose to do that just depends on whether you discount yourself because I'm too old or you'll account yourself as whatever God wants to make of you. Beautiful stories being written in both the lives of young people and older people. I wonder when you're ever too old. You know, I've quoted this, but I'm going to do it again. It's a great quote. G.K. Chesterton. Right is right, even if nobody does it. Wrong is wrong, even if everybody is wrong about it. It's just classic. He was a British man, a poet and a theologian. In his day, he would have rattled cages. Perhaps a majority would have found great agreeability with him, but there was no doubt that he was rattling the press, giving them something to write about. He did to the fullness of his life what we need to say is my responsibility, to voice the things of God. Well, I've got a voice. To follow in the ways of the Lord, why somebody can have opportunity to see what it is that I do. To humble myself before God. There's a guy in a street corner. You've seen him. This week, he was in, I guess, burlap, with a little sash around his waist and a sign that said, Repent. Do you know what the last thing it was that I was going to do? I was not going to mock him. 
Do I think that it is an offensive message to a majority of the community? Yep. Wasn't offensive to me. Part of me said, man, I wish I had guts like that. But then a part of me said, you know what? I do. I'm able to pray for him and what he's doing as a convicted believer. I do not know exactly where he is within the body of Christ, but I know that for somebody to say, with even a pictorial, who am I to laugh in these end times about somebody? He's not waving a gun for Second Amendment rights, though that wouldn't surprise me either, and I'd probably be more alarmed. But a sign that simply says, repent. God wants our heart. He wants a change in us. Who am I to laugh? Am I big enough to join him? I don't know about that, but I know I'm big enough to be able to not mock him and to say, Lord, that my heart might be as zealous for you. And I'm not saying it's not. I'm just saying when I see somebody like that, I'm going, who put you there? And how is it that you can stand there for like five, six, seven hours a day? And the other thing that I'm very careful about is to not misunderstand that if it's God's pleasure that he entertains some people by angels that we are unaware. That's the last thing I'm going to laugh at. Don't know. Maybe you've seen him in McDonald's or Burger King. Don't know. I'm just saying he is getting a message out. And the traffic just goes, I've heard some honking. I've also heard some yelling. But not me. I just respectively said, Lord, time is short. May we as a nation repent. And may we as a church be able to say with the power that my pen holds, change that you desire, change that we need to make attitudinally and by precept and by line upon line. So the messengers come back, reiterating what the king had already said and what Ahab seemingly had agreed to do. They're going to take whatever is pleasant and they're going to put it in their hands and take it. So the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Notice, please, and see how this man seeks trouble, for he sent to me, for he sent to me, for my wives, my children, my silver, and my gold, and I did not deny him. So there we go. We're willing to deny God, but we're not willing to deny culture and the threat of the enemy through the voicing of many kings and many prophets, many princes. Quick to deny God, he had access to the Lord. Like I said, knees and body prostrate. He could have moved to summon Elijah. And I'll bet you Elijah would have been quickly dispatched by God to give him the counsel of the holy. All the elders and all the people said to him, do not listen or consent. That's great. That's a congregation of people that are saying, don't. Again, it tells you that as leader of Israel, he didn't know 
what to say. He was impotent in the power that God had given to him, even knowing that a powerful man of God had shown the Lord's mercy and grace to even escort him to the place, the palace that his wife was at, to say, you've got to correct yourself. Therefore he said to the, uh, to the messengers of Benedad, tell my Lord, the king, all that you sent for to your servant the first time I will do. So this is compromise. Okay, what I agreed the first time, which is basically wives, gold and silver, and children, that'll all do. But this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought back word to him. What can he not do? He can't give the other servants coming in to take whatever is their heart's desire. The others, okay, I'll give up my wives, I'll give up my children, and whatever I have in my treasury, the gold and silver. But the second dispatch, that it, that's not going to happen. You're not going to take everything that you desire, just the things that I've agreed on. And you're kind of going, isn't that kind of the same stupidity? Why would you do that? Because we can be stupid when we think that appeasement is how God settles issues. He doesn't. We're not to appease the enemy. We're not even to be able to say, oh, well, this bargain's okay. This will work. And so Benedad sent to him and said, the gods do so to me. And more also, if enough dust is left on Samaria for a handful of each of the people who follow me, so the king of Israel answered and said, tell him, let not the one who puts on his armor boast like the one who takes it off. Clever proverb there of what it is you have compared to what it is I have. It could be a statement of faith, but nevertheless, it does suggest armor. Are these times in which the Lord would say, armor up church, armor up. It's time to be equipped for battle. It's time to have the sword of the Spirit in your hand. It's time to be filled to capacity and overflow. It's time to know whom you will say yes to and whom you must say no to. It's time, church, when the threats against your gold and silver and family and children become authentically real, who will you try to appease? Will you settle for pleasing God or will your endeavor be to appease evil, which cannot be appeased? Never has been, never will be. So it's a great phrase. We're not sure exactly in what mindset he's taking this. Is he readying for battle? Or is he saying in his heart by that statement, the battle belongs to the Lord? And if he says the battle belongs to the Lord, then how is it that he will allow the Lord to take authority for the outcome of the win? Because that's the other thing. How is it that we will let the Lord have authority over the outcome for the win without receiving glory for, ooh, what I did? See, there's a difference between doing what God has said is following him and acting in obedience 
then doing what we say garnishes the greater attention for even spiritual and political alliances that may play to ultimately our own pride and arrogance. We've all got that tendency. And so the king of Israel answered and said, Tell him, let not the one who puts his armor boast like the one who takes it off. And it happens when Benadad heard this message as he and the kings were drinking at the command post that he said to his servants, Get ready. And they got ready to attack the city. I close here to say simply, that tells you something is that even in culture which has power and threat, their mindset is party, meaning they're not in the right mind. Their boast is an arrogance and in the flesh. This indicates that before battle, there's a big party going on. And the world system in the battle and before the battle that seemingly threatens you is in party mode. And they do not know who's actually in charge of the battle, who it belongs to. It's the Lord. Therefore, as the world system is in party mode, we must not be in anything less than devotional mode. That's our responsibility. That's our charge. In Matthew 9, in conclusion here, when the calling of this unique disciple came upon him, this was Matthew, it indicated this. It was immediate detachment from what he was attached to. That little table that brokered his finances, all the things that he was despised for by his people, all the things that were bravado for Rome. Yay, good job, Matthew. Good. Awesome. You're doing great. Get us what we want. Take what you want. Good job, Matthew. And Jesus comes by that very table. He doesn't turn his shoulder and say, oh, I despise you, Matthew. I've been trying to work on your heart since the time I've walked from the Jordan, and you are just despicable. He says, follow me. And what is in this case, what Ahab has been challenged to do, which he refuses to do, this immediate detachment lends itself to one other thing that you can confirm is your life, immediate attachment. You detach yourself from the world system, and you do what? You immediately attach yourself to God's will, his way, and what he is doing in your life.